Good evening. It's wonderful to be here and be with you tonight. Very thankful uh, for the invitation to speak. Hope the things that we study tonight will be a blessing to you. They challenge your faith. I know it would be a, a great time to do a, a lesson on Thanksgiving. I'm not going to do that tonight. We're going to do something a little bit different. You see a sign that is hang, this hanging up in a, one of those little antique shops. My wife and I went on a little mini vacation and, for a weekend, and we we're going through these shops, and she saw this, and she really wanted me to buy it because she thought I really needed this. I'm not sure 100% why, but she really felt like I needed it, but being cheap like I am, I just took a picture of it. But, but in looking at this and talking about this topic, I, I want us to, to really look a little bit more about this idea of being in control, not self-control. We'll brush up against the topic of self-control, but the need that we often have to be in control, to be this kind of person that's a control freak. We might think of that and go, well, that's just a personality quirk. Some people have that in them, some people don't. I'm going to make an argument tonight that to some extent, all of us have this in us in some form or fashion in some area of our life, and that actually the more we strive to be in control, the more we're going to struggle as a Christian. I want to show you that tonight and, and talk about ways that we can learn to give up control and learn to give that control back to God to direct and to guide our lives. Now, before we get into the specifics of learning control, there's a couple of principles, biblical principles, I want to remind us of and that lead us right into this topic of control. The first is what I would call a balance and keeping religion in a balance. In America, there's this tradition or this tendency for American Christianity, I'm using that in the broadest sense, for people to overemphasize one side or the other. You've heard of the debates between grace versus work, faith versus law, obedience versus mercy, as if those two are competing ideas in the Scripture. And a lot of times it gets real easy for us to focus on one side and not think about the other side of that. But a biblical picture is that those two things are in balance with one another that they work together. There's a lot of scriptures that we could look at tonight that talk about the need for the grace, the mercy, for a relationship with God. One of my favorite passages is in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 where Paul writes and says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I love what Paul says here. Paul doesn't say that I know about Jesus that I know about his life, that I can tell you the details, and I've got all the historical facts, and I've got all the knowledge from God. That's not what he argues. He says, listen, I want to know Jesus. He's talking about knowing somebody in a relationship. I want to get to know that person, to be in a relationship where they know me and I know them and I understand how they think and why they think. And certainly the Scriptures, there's a lot more that we could look at tonight that point to this idea about us growing in that relationship with God, knowing who God is, to be able to see the world through God's eyes and respond to God in such a way. And that's certainly a biblical principle. But it can be overemphasized to the point that we begin to take liberty and license with God. For example, here in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 1, those that would emphasize this liberty, this relationship, this grace and mercy would look at this passage that says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, can take that to the point and go, See, I, God knows me, and we've got this really good relationship, and, and you know, I know I've got a couple of sins, but they're not that big a deal. And it doesn't really bother me that much. I'm not really worried about overcoming them. And I, I'm, they're just, that's kind of who I am. And, and oh, well, you know, I know I shouldn't, but, but I'm in a relationship with God, and that's all that matters. 
And an overemphasis on that can lead one to not being sensitive to the sin in their life. It could lead one to ignoring the very commands that God says. And so, yes, it's important that we develop that relationship, that we, like Paul, have this desire to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, to be made conformable to his death, that all those things matter to us, but not to the extent that we disobey or we don't acknowledge our shortcomings and work to change those. And so, yeah, we need to, to, to revel in the grace and the mercy of God, but not overemphasize that. Yet on the flip side of that, we can, can go, listen, those people that talk love and peace and joy, they're just a bunch of religious hippies, and, and we need to be worried about uh, obedience and, and, and works and doing what God tells us to do. And certainly there's some truth to, to that type of statement. We read here in James 4 and verse 17, Therefore him that knoweth to do good and doeth not him it is sin. God says, listen, if you know what's right, and you know what I call you to do, and you don't do it, I want you to understand, that's sin. I understand this passage. He's not writing to people that are living in abject rebellion to God. He's not writing to people that don't know God, that don't have a relationship, that haven't been saved. He's writing to Christians like you and I. And he says to you and I, listen, if you know what to do and you don't do it, God says that's sin. And we need to be aware of that. That God has called us to live a certain standard, that my thoughts matter, that my actions matter, that my words matter, what I do and what I don't do, how I worship, how I praise, all of that matters to God. And I need to be serious about that. But again, we can take that obedience to God's law and begin to overemphasize it to the point that we begin to mark our righteousness in what we think is our ability to keep the law. I want to give you an example. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. I love this passage. It talks not just about the church assemblies, I believe. I believe it's talking about any time the saints are coming together for whatever reason that we ought not to forsake that. But we can take this passage and go, I haven't missed church in 17 years. Look how good a Christian I am. I've got to be top-notch, man. My child was born on a Thursday. We were in the pew on Sunday. That's how devoted to Christ I am. And we begin to mark our good works. I know there's nobody in this room that would stand up and go, I'm sinless. But sometimes I wonder if we were there in John chapter 8 when Jesus looked at the woman taken in adultery and said, let him that's without sin cast the first stone. I wonder if some of us might have went, well, let me find one. As if we might have been able to do that. Because we look at our righteousness through our obedience that we think is pretty good. And we begin to get a skewed picture and don't really see who we are and begin to depend on ourselves for our righteousness and depend on our, our ability to keep or not keep the law as our justification. And that certainly misses the picture. We need God's mercy. We can't be saved without it. It's His grace and it's His mercy that saved us. And our response to that is to live the life that He called us to that I am concerned about sin in my life. I am concerned about growing into the man, the woman, the husband, the wife, the child of God that he's called me to be. And so there's this need for us to constantly be reminded that these things work in a balance together, that God's grace and God's mercy, it, my response to that is obedience and surrender, that I live that life that he's called me to, not to earn my salvation, but because he saved me. 
Those things work together in a balance. That's the first thing I want to remind us of. The second thing I want to talk a little bit about before we get to control is the subject of submission. I know that's not a popular topic in the world today, but I want to talk about submission. I think it's vastly, vastly misunderstood. I think when people hear the word submission, they think subjection or subduing somebody, forcing a weaker person into a subservient role. And I want to tell you, that's not at all what biblical submission looks like. Not at all what biblical submission looks like. There's some things about it that we need to be aware of. Here's the definition of to subordinate, reflexively to obey, to be under obedience or obedient, to put under, to subdue unto, to make or be subject unto or unto, be put into subjection to or under, submit oneself to. It's just this idea of me placing myself below somebody. And here's the the kicker that all of us need to know. Every single person in this room is called into submission in some form or another. I'm not talking about our submission to God. I'm talking about our relationships with one another, with this world. We're called to submit. Consider, if you will, here these three passages. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves in the elders. Yea, all of you be subject, same word, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. 1 Peter chapter 2 there, he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. And then we all know Ephesians 5.25, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Every one of us can't, there's not a one of us that can escape God's call for us to be in submission to someone. But here's the kicker. It's a choice you make. Notice in none of these passages does he tell somebody to put someone else into submission. He doesn't say, you older folks, make sure the young people submit to you. He doesn't say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. He doesn't even give the right to the government for the government to make its citizens submit. God says to you and I, I'm asking you, all of you, be submissive to one another. Wives, I'm asking you to submit to your husband. Citizens of this nation, God's asking you to submit to your government. And that's a choice that you make. That's what God wants us to understand, that submission is a choice for you to make. No one's going to, I guess man can, but from God's perspective, you're not being forced to submit. He's asking you to do that. Secondly, not only is submission a choice that the person being placed under makes, submission only occurs when people disagree. If we agree, there's no submission that takes place. Suppose, and I love this illustration, suppose after services tonight we decide to go out and get some ice cream. And you say, hey, let's go to Brahms and get some ice cream. And I go, great, I love Brahms, let's go to to ice cream at Brahms. Who submitted? Me or you? Neither. We both got exactly what we wanted because we agreed. But if you say, hey, let's go to Brahms and let's get some ice cream, and I go, listen, if we're going to eat ice cream, might as well eat the best ice cream in the world. Let's go get some Bluebell. And you go, no, 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 I don't want Bluebell. I want Brahms. If we're going to accomplish our goal of eating ice cream together, one of us is going to have to submit. Either you're going to submit and eat the best ice cream in the world, or I'm going to submit and go eat inferior ice cream with you. One of those two things is going to have to happen. But somebody has to submit when there's disagreement. And I want to tell you, in all these passages, it's the same principle. The younger, when the, the older folks, I'll let you decide where you fall on that line. But when they want to do something, you go, that's not what I want to do. God says, listen, I'm asking you in this moment 
to yield yourself to the older people when there's a disagreement. All of you to one another when there's a disagreement. I'm asking you to yield. If the young people hear the old folks go, hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and the young folks go, great, let's do that. That's awesome. There's no submission in that. There's agreement. There's walking together. The same is true when it comes down, we're talking about our obedience to mankind, our obedience to the government. You know, there's laws that our government passes that I'm going to tell you I'm not in submission to, I'm in agreement with. When they say, hey, let's not walk around and kill people, I kind of like that one. I think that's a good idea. I'm not in submission to that. I'm in agreement with that. I'm walking with my government on that. But then they turn around and say, we want you to pay taxes. (laughs) I don't agree. At all do I agree with them. And that's where God says, Mike, I'm asking you to place yourself under the government and do what they say. And that's true with husbands and wives as well. Wives, when you're called to submit is when your husband's not very bright, which I grant is most of the time, but still, that's when you're being asked to submit. When your husband, you disagree with the decision they're making. So submission is a choice that you make when there's disagreement to place yourself under. Putting all these together brings us to this verse here in James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. First thing I want to point out to you is verse 8 here, where he talks about the relationship between uh, that balance that we talked about between the relationship with God, drawing nigh to God, knowing God, knowing about God. And he ties that directly to cleanse your hands and purify your heart. Clean up how you're living. Notice the connection between those two. But before that, he gets right to the heart of it and says, submit yourselves to God. I want to tell you that everything that we just said about submission is true for this situation. Number one, it's a choice that you get to make on whether you are going to submit. Again, he's writing to Christians. It's a choice that you're going to make when you're facing that temptation. When you know what's right to do, you know what God calls you to do, and you don't want to do it. In essence, you're saying, God, I disagree. This is not the direction I want to go. It's not what I want to do. It's not what I want to say. It's not what I want to think. I want to do something different. And God said, I'm asking you to place yourself under me, to build this relationship. I'm asking you to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and give me control. You see, that idea of being in control really boils down to this moment. When I'm facing that decision where I don't want to do what God wants me to do, the question is, will I surrender control in that moment to God and become what He's called me to become and do what He wants me to do? And the truth is we struggle with this because we struggle with being in control. I will confess to you, I am a control freak, which I think is better than where I've been before in my life. And I think all of us, as I said in the beginning, have some degree of that. There's some of you in this room that you can get in a car as a passenger and just ride happily along, never say a word. Now, listen, I just want to say this. It's not that I think you're a bad driver. (laughs) I just think I can do it better. 
You're in the wrong lane. You're not going too fast. Or you're not going fast. Well, now you're going too fast. Now you're not being safe. All of us have that. I'm a control freak in other areas. You can ask my children. I probably was way too hard on them when they borrowed tools out of my shop. And they didn't put them back exactly where they go. Because they had to be in the exact place, facing the exact way, because that's how I like it. Those are some of the areas I'm a control freak in. I'm going to pick on my wife a little bit, and she's not near as bad as she was when we first got married, but her kitchen is a very much so a control freak area for my wife. Not only do you have to put the dishes up a certain way, not only did the dishwasher have to be loaded a certain way, but certain pots and pans could only be used for certain foods. One of my favorite memories is my wife teaching my children how to cook. She'd tell my son, now if you're going to cook this kind of food, you use this pot, and Corbin would go, okay, that's what I'm going to do. He would tell, she would tell Rebecca, you're going to use this kind of pot to cook this kind of food. And Rebecca would go, why? That pot would work. No, Rebecca, I want you to do it this way. And as soon as Joanne would turn around, Rebecca would grab the other pot and stick something in there and go, see, it works. And my wife was not very happy because her control was lost. There are some of us that have to have everything at a right angle on our desk. I'll give you guys one that, that all, a lot of guys have in them. When we go out to eat in a public restaurant, we all like to sit with our back to the wall facing the door. And we tell everybody, listen, it's for situational awareness. It's so I know what's going on. No, it's not. It's a control issue so that you can be in control. You think if you can see everything, you can control it all. And that's just not the reality. Listen, we live in such a way that we think we're in more control of this life than we really are. There's a passage here in James chapter 4 where he talks about this. He says, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we'll go in such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. And he goes on from here to say, he says, you don't even know what your life is. It's a vapor that appears for a little while. How do you know you're going to live tomorrow? How do you know that you're going to be able to sell or you're going to be able to buy? And it drives at this heart of this idea that I think I'm in control of my life and I have this need to try to control everything around my life. And the more I think I can control it, the better I think things are going to be. There's a cold, hard reality. You don't control much in life at all. You really don't control much. You're in control of very little. I'll tell you what the Bible says you're in control of yourself. And that's about it. Romans 6 and verse 16, he says, Know you not therefore to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are to whom you obey, whether it's sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. That's it. At the end of the day, that's really it. That's the only thing you really, really can control. I know we think we control other people. Do you remember raising little kids? <laughs> How much control did you ultimately really have? They eventually grow up, and they turn into teenagers, and they turn into young adults, and you realize you don't control them. You really only control you, and that's why God said before that in Romans 6 and verse 13, neither yield you your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. He said, this is where I want you to focus. I want you to be in control of this. And I want you to place your focus on controlling this because that's the, the, the pivotal moment when I disagree with God 
When God says, Mike, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. In this second, in this moment, when you're feeling this, when you're thinking this, when you're wanting to do this, Mike, I'm asking you, give me control in that moment. And I can control that. And that's about it. But here's the problem. If I live my life day by day, trying to be in control of everything in my world, I'm going to struggle in that moment when God asks me to give up control. And I'm not going to have the ability to give up that control because I've not been practicing it. I've been practicing just the opposite. I've been practicing and living and taking control over things that I really don't control, but I'm fooling myself trying to be in control of them And God says, I want you to give that to me. And we can't because we lack the ability of training. So how can I learn to get there? There, There's some more to this lesson I'd love to get into tonight. I'm going to give you four quick reasons why we don't give up control, and then we'll talk about how to learn to start giving up that control. Number one reason I think we don't give up control is rebellion. I'm just being flat honest. There are times I know what God said to do, and I know what God wants me to do, And it's not a matter of, can I give up control or not? It's a matter of, I don't want to. And I ain't going to do it. Because this feels good. Because I think I can get away with this. Because nobody else is going to see it. Nobody else is going to hear it. And so in flat-out rebellion, I refuse to give up control at times in my life. There are times in my life that it's my pride. That to give up control in a moment is going to make me look weak. It's going to make me look inferior. People may make fun of me. People may mock me, and my pride won't let me give up that control. There are times in life that I'm afraid and I worry about what's going to happen if I give up control, as if I actually have some kind of control. And I fool myself into this fear and this worry of what people think about me or what's going to happen next if I give up that control. Closely related to that is this idea that I think if I'm not in control, chaos will ensue. Everything's going to spin out of control. Those are there for you, and you can dig into deeper on those, but I want to tell you there's a lot of reasons we don't give up control. But if we want to learn in that moment of temptation, in that moment of God asking you to give Him control of your life, there are some things that you can actively do to learn to to get there. And the first thing I would tell you is to grow your faith in good days. And what I mean by that is start giving up control where you don't absolutely have to have control. Start giving up control where you don't absolutely have to have control. Guys, those of you that think you have to face the doors in a restaurant, let me give you a challenge. Next time you go out, purposely seat yourself with your back to the doors. It'll drive you insane. (laughs) I know it will. I've been there, and it's a struggle. I've been doing it for about a year now, and it's not gotten a whole lot easier from day one to, to today. Every noise behind me, I want to see, I I, got to know. I don't know why. I do know why, because I think I've got to be in control. But learning to give up those control in areas where I don't need it is going to strengthen me and it's going to equip me in the practice of giving up control. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews that I love that talks about these things that, that faith did in these people. 
at the end of the passage, we stop getting specific names, or at the end of the chapter, we stop getting specific names and just start getting some descriptions of the power of faith. He says, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, more over bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, tormented, afflicted. How did they do that? Well, the answer, obviously, in Hebrews chapter 11 is they did it by faith. Faith empowered them. Faith equipped them that they could take these things. Do you think they were ready for this on day one of being a Christian? No. It took a strong faith. It took a deep faith. It took a faith that had been tested over and over and developed and grown and was strong. I know what happened to people that didn't have a strong faith in these days, whose faith wasn't exercised, whose faith wasn't strong. They fell away. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we see that all the time, today still. Members of the Lord's church that don't have a strong faith, when difficulty hits, what happens to them? They leave because that faith wasn't strong to endure that temptation, that moment of trial. It's no different with learning to give up control. If you spend your whole life trying to be in control and trying to control every situation, when you face that moment where God says to you, Mike, give me control, I won't know how to do it. I've never practiced it. I've never done it. I've done the opposite all my life. So if I want to learn to give up control on that, maybe I need to start practicing giving up control where I can and where I don't really need to be in control. It's just a self-serving thing. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe you need to let somebody else drive and while you bite down on a strap of leather and just sit there and shut up and learn to take it. Learn to give up that control. Quit stomping on the floorboard. Quit giving them backseat instructions. Let go. And give up control in whatever area it is in your life. That's exactly, we said we're going to brush up against self-control, and this passage does that. In 2 Peter 1 verse 5 here, he says, giving all, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance or self-control, and to temperance patience, to patience godliness, godliness kindness, kindness brotherly, or, or, and to kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. This idea of me continuing to grow and develop my faith that he's talking about here, that I learn the self-control that allows me to give up control. In those moments, I control myself and say, you know what? doesn't matter if they cook with the wrong pot. It's going to wash. doesn't matter if they didn't put the tool back in the exact right place. It's going to be okay that I learn to give up that control and I take control of myself, self-control, learning to give up that control. And the more I do that, the more that ability becomes strengthened. Consider another passage in Hebrews chapter 5. He says, But strong meat belong to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know how you get good at something? You do it over and over and over again. My son, Corbin, is graduating this year from OU in music. Loves music, loves performance. He can play a lot of instruments. I was there when he first started playing. It wasn't good. 
it was bad. He's good now. He's real good. How did he get there? By driving me crazy every day, practicing and practicing and practicing. I'm going to tell you it's no different for you and I. If I want to learn to give up control in that moment when God is saying to me, Mike, give me control, it starts by practicing and building that muscle by reason of use. I learned to do that. Second thing that we need to do is acknowledge and really dive into the reality that God knows and wants what's best for me. I know all of us sit here and tonight would go, well, yeah, I agree with that statement. And we would agree with passages like Isaiah 55, verse 8, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, saith the Lord, for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Every one of us would say, amen, I agree with that. But there's a difference between saying, amen, I agree with that, and living that way. It's where when I face those situations of temptation to do what I want to do, to give in to the lust and the desires of the flesh, to step back and go, you know what? God really does want what's best for me. He's not making up rules to make my life difficult. He's not trying to punish me or hurt me. He really does want what's best for me. And this thing that I'm craving, this thing that I want control over and to say no God to God for is really going to hurt me. It really will. Because God wants what's best for me. He wants what's best in this life and in the life to come. You know, sometimes learning to say no you might struggle with that and go, well, how does God really want what's best for me in this situation? Sometimes what's best for you is to not experience sin so that you don't get a taste of it. You want to know how to never, ever get drunk in your life? Ever? Never drink a drop of alcohol. I didn't say it was sin to ever have a drop of alcohol. We'll talk about that and debate that topic later if you want to. But I can tell you this. If you never want to get drunk, don't ever drink the alcohol. Is God punishing you, taking good-tasting things away? from? When he says don't be drunk, he says, I want what's best for you. I want you to be sober. I want you to be in control of your life. I don't want you to have regrets and sorrows and scars that haunt you for years caused by drunkenness and the things that you do while you're that way. God knows and wants what's best for me. The Bible says there's a way which seems right unto men, but in the end thereof are the ways of death. In that moment when God says, Mike, give me control, I've got to recognize, listen, God wants what's best, and what I'm about to do is the way of death. What I'm craving, what I'm desiring, I know I think I like it, but it's going to hurt me. And it's going to cost me in this life and in the life to come. I need to realize that God really does want what is best for me, that he's seeking to save me. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 here. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Man, this verse is deep. I want you to think about what he's saying. He says, look, look what God did for you. He gave His Son, delivered Him up to be your sin, to be crucified, to bear the weight of the sin of the world. If God did that for you, what's He going to hold back from you? 
Don't you see? He wants what's best. And you're not going to find that by you being in control of your life. You're going to find that when you voluntarily place yourself in submission to God and say, God, you take control. You make this decision. You guide my life. You guide my thoughts. You guide my tongue. Lord, you be in control. When we have that attitude, then it opens up this idea of us being able to respond to life the way God wants us to do. He says here in 1 Corinthians, there's no temptation that's taking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I want you to notice something about this passage. It tells us God is faithful. Do you believe that tonight? In that moment of temptation, when you're struggling to do what God has called you to do, when you're hearing the voice of God calling you, saying, give me control, in that moment, do you believe God is faithful? That He's going to hold to His promises. He's going to freely give you all things. If you do, then you'll look for that way out that you're going to be able to bear it. You might have to be humiliated. You might have to give up control. You might have to grovel. But guess what? God is faithful. And His promise is going to come true. I've got to believe that if I'm going to give Him control. If I doubt Him, I won't do it. It's just that simple. I've got to know that God knows and wants what's best. Lastly tonight, in that moment, those first two things that we talked about are some things that we can be doing actively in our life to help prepare us for that thing, learning to give up control by, or learning to say yes to God's control in that moment by practicing giving up control in areas where we don't need it, uh, developing and growing in our knowledge that God wants what's best for us. But this last thing, say a prayer of glad thanksgiving, is something that's very specific to the moment that you're in that temptation. And I mean exactly what I say when I say a prayer of glad thanksgiving. And I base this off of James chapter 1, beginning here in verse 2, where it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, the trying of your faith produces patience, but let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I love how we treat this verse. We look at this verse and go, now listen, it doesn't mean count it all joy like gladness, uh, celebration. You know, it, it just means be, be happy about it. And, I, and I, here's my problem. It actually means gladness. <laughs> it means to, to kind of celebrate, to be cheerful. It means what it says, to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, diverse trials, various testing of our faith. He says, count it joy. And I want to tell you, there's a difference in my approach to my trials when I'm beat down and gloomy not this again. I'm so tired. Versus an attitude that says, all right, I like this. Thank you, God. I've been working on it. I've been practicing, giving up control. I've been growing. I've been studying. I've been praying. Lord, put me in. I'm ready to go. I want to fight for you. I'm going to tell you my attitude is going to be different. My effort's going to be different. My willingness to endure 
the trial is going to be different. Let me give you an illustration. It's the high school freshman that doesn't even belong on the varsity football team that somehow got on the team. And he's been working out all season. He hadn't seen a play on the field. Barely even gets to carry the water out to the field. But he works hard all season long, gives it his all in every practice, eats right, sleeps right, lifts weights, does all that stuff. Finally, the coach says, hey, come here, get in there. That kid's jacked. <laughs> he is excited to be in there. Listen, he's probably going to blow it. <laughs> he's probably going to get steamrolled. But I tell you, his effort in attacking that field can't be questioned. And it's the same principle that we're talking about here. Instead of being scared, instead of being afraid, instead of dreading it, we stop and we turn to God and say, thank you for this trial. Thank you for this moment to see my growth, to see where I'm at, to expose my weaknesses and show me where I need more help, Lord. Thank you for this moment that I can become what you want me to be. Notice what he says a little bit later in James here. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for he, when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to them that love him. There's that same idea again of this idea of promise them that love him. Again, here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. This is me being excited about the challenges and the difficulties, wanting to face a temptation so that I can endure it, so that I can show my growth to the Lord, so that I can revel with Him in that relationship and say, Lord, I'm becoming what you want me to become. I'm stronger today than I was a year ago, Lord. I have more patience. I have more faith in you. Thank you for showing me that. But thank you also for showing me where I still need work. I still need growth. But notice, if you will, in all of this, them that love him, them that love God, that relationship never goes away. It's these things working together, that balance that we set. Now, I, I want to say this quickly on this, and, and we'll wrap up tonight. Certainly, when you say a prayer of glad thanksgiving, including that a prayer for wisdom, as James 1.5 tells us, including that a prayer for strength in that moment, certainly, I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying make sure that you're rejoicing, that you're joyful for that temptation, for a chance to give up control to God. Every one of us in this room, as we go about our life, are going to face those moments where God says to you, give me control. What are you going to do in that moment? Will you stumble and say, no, Lord, I'm in control? and I'm going to do what I want to do? Or will you be able in that moment to say, yes, Lord, you take control. You guide me. You lead me. You tell me what to do in this moment, and I'll do it. That's what it's going to take. I'm going to have to grow my faith in the good days. I'm going to have to know that God wants what's best for me, and I'm going to have to have a prayer of glad thanksgiving. Those things will equip me to in that moment say, Lord, take control. It belongs to you. I want to leave you with two passages we've already read tonight. Romans 6, verses 16 and verse 13. Know you not to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are. Don't yield yourself as instruments or your members as instruments of righteous, unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself to God. So the question that's just for you, who's in control of your life? 
Who are you yielding yourself to? Does the Lord truly control who you are and how you live? Or are you fighting him for that steering wheel? If you need the prayers of the church, the elders stand here ready to assist. We ask you to have a seat on the front row as we stand out of singing.